in the Republic, there's separate legislation for mental capacity and for mental health. And once in the North, the Act is fully commenced, then the mental health legislation will no longer apply. And it will be this one legislation that will apply for both mental health and mental capacity. And what the Act does is it endorses a presumption of capacity and it endorses the functional test. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's Podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. This month's topic is Health Law, Convergence and Divergence on the Island of Ireland. And that's the title of an article recently published in Irish Studies in International Affairs. That's where all Aaron's research can be found. And the authors of this uh, article um, are with me today. Uh, Clayton O'Neill, who's a senior lecturer at the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast, and Andrea Mulligan, who's an assistant professor at Trinity College Dublin, also a barrister and a member of the a Commissioner of the Law Reform Commission. So you're both uh, most welcome. So maybe I can start with you, um, Andrea. In broad terms, what is healthcare law, health law? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, it's it's a question that even a lot of practicing lawyers would ask because it's it's quite a new area of law in terms yes. of it's not one of the classical old areas of law like tort or contract. I suppose you'd define it as sort of the interaction between law and healthcare, very broadly defined. And it's also kind of interesting to note that sort of historically it was called medical law and ethics. So my module is still called medical law and ethics, for example. But that's a very sort of personal idea of the doctor-patient relationship. So when we talk about health law, it's something much broader that encompasses, say, public health law and health policy as well. So it encompasses kind of all of that. And you say it's still developing. I mean, what would have been the main sort of staging posts uh, along the way and and when would it have begun to expand from mm. medical law? Yeah, so I suppose like historically it would have been very focused on clinical negligence, which is one of the topics yeah. we'll be talking about today. And even in the Republic of Ireland, it's not very regulated or it's sort of gradually being regulated. So a lot of the time we look at, say, the constitution just coming in to sort of deal with disputes between different people. Um, so I suppose the big steps in terms of like Republic of Ireland medical law are the development of clinical negligence, which took off in kind of the late 1980s, early 1990s. And then we sort of very gradually have like a real building up in recent recent years. So, for example, the capacity legislation came in in 2015 that we covered in the paper as well. What was passed in 2015 was commenced in 2020 and we're gradually, very late in the day, trying to regulate assisted human reproduction at the moment. So I guess it's very much an ongoing process in terms of the law kind of gradually extending its its remit over health and healthcare. And uh, uh, Clayton, would it be fair to describe um, the evolution of, of health law in Northern Ireland uh, in the same sort of terms? I think in many respects that would be a fair comment. Um, Health law has evolved considering a number of different controversial and ethically challenging issues, both north and south of the border. What's been particularly interesting in the north, however, is the sort of relationship between Britain and the north and the fact that it's often an, an overlooked jurisdiction and there would be very there would be a paucity of, of material or even jurisprudence in relation to medical law in Northern Ireland, especially except maybe in the area of abortion, which we'll be talking about later on. So medical law in the UK has developed very significantly and there's a wide range of, of jurisprudence and case law that's developing almost on a daily basis. And then I think one thing that's worth mentioning 
is the very strong connection between medical law and ethics. And it's very difficult to think about medical law or health law scenarios without asking yourself, what are the ethical implications? And there's this connection is at the core of the discussion or of the debates pertaining to medical law or health law, such as perhaps the introduction of of assisted dying or other controversial areas. And to what extent um, has it been influenced in, in either jurisdiction by the evolution of, of international law and European convention law? Mm. I think there's been a very significant influence from human rights instruments and from the uh, at an international level and the European Convention on Human Rights, when we think about the the two of the three areas that we're looking at in the paper, capacity and abortion, involve a very significant focus placed on the CEDAW and indeed the uh, CRPD. So you've got these two major. S- sorry, you might just tell our you might just tell our listeners what they are. So this is the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the Convention Against the Discrimination of Women. And these two major international conventions have played a very significant role in the introduction of the legislation on capacity and abortion, both north and south of the border. And as well as that, the European Convention on Human Rights has played a major role in the development of human rights. We see in the UK the um, Article 8 rights, the right to private and family life, and indeed Article 2 right to life being used very regularly in in relation to the vindication of human rights in medical law context. And as I'm sure Andrea will allude to, the, the strong connection between human rights law and healthcare provision and practice in the South, and indeed the connection between the Irish Constitution and the rights that it protects and the law. Yeah, maybe we could get on to that point, Andrea, just generally, yeah, the development of human rights law in the Republic and, of course, our translation into Irish law of, of various international conventions, I suppose the Convention on Persons with Disabilities is a is a major one. Mm-hmm. That's actually really an interesting potential point of divergence actually between the North of Ireland and the South in that I would say that the obviously in the Republic of Ireland the core human rights instrument is the Constitution and in fact in discussions around human rights that often gets lost. So I think it's actually it's remarkable sometimes people will talk about human rights in Ireland and ignore the, or overlook the fact that we have a fundamental rights document that's been in place since 1937 which isn't perfect but which certainly has a lot of, of incredible incredible strengths. So I suppose in the Republic, it's really the constitution that is the main human rights influence on medical law. And that's been very significant. Obviously, we know that the constitution was used to govern abortion. It's an unusual constitution in that it involves itself with like families, children, things like that, which other constitutions don't mention at all in some cases. So that's been the key influence. The ECHR has has, a, has been implemented in a different way in this jurisdiction as compared with Northern Ireland and, and Great Britain. So it's, it's a more limited kind of implementation but because of the sort of pre-existing domestic human rights jurisprudence. And then I suppose just the other thing to mention is that there is a degree to which I think international institutions are sometimes reticent to involve themselves too much in the field of health law because it tends to be extremely ethically contentious. So even though ECHR law is influential in, say, the field of abortion, you know, when the ECHR was asked to say there's a right to an abortion, it didn't, you know, because there is a, there is sort of an element of deference to domestic policymaking in that. And it's also similarly not not so much regulated at the EU level compared to other types or other areas of human existence because of those sensitive sort of moral and ethical disputes at its core. Yeah, I suppose in general the unions 
capacity in or competence in, in health generally is is relatively limited. Exactly. A complementary yeah. competence, it's it's, it's yeah. called. Um, maybe, Clayton, you might just give us then a, a quick sort of overview of the topics you, you cover uh, in the paper. We've already heard some alluded to, and then we'll, we'll start getting through the, the individual subjects, maybe in a bit more detail. So when we were first asked to, to write a paper on health law, it was difficult to try to think about what would we do? Would we try to look at lots of different areas or would we focus on one area in particular? And we decided that it would be almost impossible to ignore these three major pillars of health law. So the areas we've considered are capacity, abortion and medical negligence. And the reason why we chose capacity is because it's a cross-cutting topic, because in order to understand lots of areas of health law, you need to understand about how capacity or incapacity is assessed and the different tools that are used. And as well as that, a very significant reason for focusing on capacity is that almost at a simultaneous time, we have two pieces of legislation in the North and the South. We have the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act 2015 in the South, and in the North, um, we have the Mental Capacity Act, Northern Ireland 2016. So we've had two significant legislative changes happening almost simultaneously, which allowed us to interrogate the differences that exist between the two pieces of legislation on the island of Ireland, and perhaps whether one is leaning more towards human rights compliance or in other directions. In relation to abortion, it was felt by myself and Andrea that it would be very difficult to not write about abortion because almost in a similar vein to capacity, we've had very uh, major change in this area with the referendum in the Republic and indeed with the introduction of abortion or the legalisation of abortion in the North following the decision made by the Westminster government. And again, we've got major or significant legislative change happening almost at a very similar time. And it's also an opportunity to think about how the decisions were made. For example, the use of the Citizens' Assembly in the Republic versus the change in the law pertaining to abortion happening in Northern Ireland. And this, happened, this decision was made by a Westminster government in the absence um, of a functioning executive in Northern Ireland. And then finally, we felt that we needed to talk about medical negligence because this is probably the core subject when one thinks of of health law or indeed medical law, what medical negligence entails and how it's, are there any differences between what happens north and south? And even it was an opportunity for us to think about, are there any differences between what happens in Northern Ireland and in, in Britain? Yeah, thank you very much. Maybe just a couple more general questions before we get into uh, capacity. I mean, the first is, and I suppose this is maybe relevant to your role in the Law Commission, Andrea, I don't know. Um, to what extent is are people in the South, I mean, practitioners and academics, apart from yourself, aware of what's happening in the North? Uh, and the same question to you, Clayton, vice versa. Almost uh, absolutely unaware. It's amazing. So I think one of the really amazing things about the two jurisdictions is that we are neighbouring jurisdictions that almost completely ignore each other. Um, And we look directly to, uh, we're both very influenced by England and Wales. 
And of course, that makes a bit more sense for Northern Ireland. But, you know, we we have been separate from England and Wales since 1922. And I would say it's only relatively recently we've been becoming like really confident in being our own independent common law jurisdiction. But we certainly never look to Northern Ireland. If you're in college and in the Republic, you won't even learn about the structure of the Northern Irish courts. Yeah. You know, you won't know anything about it. And, and is the same true in reverse, uh, Clayton? Oh, the same would be very true. The The students in uh, in Queen's or, or in Ulster University would know very little about what happens in the public, virtually nothing. And uh, there's, you know, a limited solidarity um, between both sides of the border, especially in relation to health and health law. We know that there are some um, elements within the Good Friday Agreement um, that are, you know, there to promote cooperation between the North and the South. And there are some positive developments. There is the cooperation and working together scheme, which allows for um, for five counties in the north and six counties in the south to have so reciprocal agreements between um, the the different healthcare um, between healthcare delivery, as well as that there was the cross border healthcare directive in two thousand and eleven, but then following Brexit, then there has been a new temporary schemes introduced to try to promote greater solidarity north and the south, but essentially they are two separate jurisdictions where. There's limited crossover between the two. Um, in, in relation to the Northwest, there are agreements between, for example, Atnagelvin Hospital and uh, Letterkenny University Hospital, which shows positive directions in relation to working between um, healthcare providers, both North and South. But ultimately, I think that very little is known about what happens on both sides of the border. Even when you think about the COVID-19 crisis or the COVID-19 emergency um, in relation to the North, almost everything involved followed what happened in London rather than sort of thinking about the island as a as a single epidemiological unit. Um, and there was very little crossover or cross thinking between the two jurisdictions. And that's yeah, that's true of the health systems in in general, obviously, and that's a point which has been made in other Aaron's articles. And I suppose then it must a fortiori be true um, of 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 health law. Well, maybe we could get on to the first of the three areas that you you focused on, capacity. And uh, again, Clayton, maybe you could give our listeners a a basic sense of of of, of what the law is in in this area, how it has developed. And again, what are the similarities and differences between North and, and South? As I mentioned, there have been two significant pieces of legislation introduced in both the North and the South. So starting off with uh, the North of Ireland, there is now the Mental Capacity Act, Northern Ireland 2016. It was enacted in 2016, but it's only really being um, a sort of... Um, commenced at a sort of a at quite a slow stage where they're looking at different um, parts of the act and starting off with the deprivation of liberty safeguards prior to reform in this area there was no specific legislation on um, capacity the Bamford review said that the law failed to comply with ethical principles such as autonomy and dignity and justice so ultimately when the Mental Capacity Act, Northern Ireland 2016, was introduced. It was hailed as being quite progressive because what it does is it introduces a form of fusion legislation where it fuses mental health law and mental capacity law. 
In relation to the first stage of the implementation of the MCA NI 2016, there is a very strong presumption of capacity. It is clear from the Act that no assumptions can be made about a person's characteristics. All practical steps have to be taken to help a person to make a decision and that um, anything that is done for a patient who lacks capacity must be done in the patient's best interest. What the Act does is it tries to reduce a stigma associated with mental illness and to try to ensure that the same treatment exists, or sorry, the same um, approach is adopted in relation to capacity, in relation to mental health and also mental capacity. So the focus of the new legislation is to try to endorse or promote patient autonomy and to remove the twin criteria of mental disorder and risk of harm. The new legislation um, uses a diagnostic and a functional test for incapacity. Therefore, it shares many similarities with the Mental Capacity Act 2005 in England and Wales. So this means that you have to ask, is there an impairment of or a disturbance in the functioning of the mind or the brain? That's the diagnostic test. And the functional test, uh, you need to ask, is the patient unable to understand the information retain the information or communicate his or her decision. Now, this approach has been criticised because it still incorporates a diagnostic element to the test, unlike in the South, where it's a purely functional test. And it is argued that this possibly breaches Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which says that persons with disabilities have the right to recognition everywhere as persons under the law. So the fact that you've got this diagnostic test almost brings in a form of bias and it maybe focuses more on what the patient cannot do rather than what the patient can do. As well as that, the Act in the north of Ireland uses a best interest test, which differs from the south, which has what's known as a will and preference model. One of the things that is useful, however, in relation to the Northern Irish approach is that the best interest test and much of the um, and indeed the incapacity test is so similar to what exists in England and Wales. This means that much of the jurisprudence that exists will be very helpful in relation to understanding how it will apply in Northern Ireland. So, for example, the case of entry at the Supreme Court said that consideration needs to be given to the welfare of the patient in the widest sense possible. You need to think about the patient's past and present wishes. You need to consider medical best interests and social and psychological best interests. And indeed, what would the patient do if the patient had capacity? So this means that in Northern Ireland, we now have a situation where there is an entrenched legislative protection for the promotion of uh, this notion that everyone is presumed to have capacity and that if you don't have capacity, well, then you'll be treated in the best interests of the patient. Um, unlike that... Sorry, can we, yeah, can we just maybe... Yeah, sorry, I was just going to ask you to move on to the, the Republic, if that's okay. In the Republic, the situation is somewhat different because they have not adopted this fusion legislation. So this means that there's separate legislation for mental capacity and for mental health. And once in the North, the... Um, the act is fully commenced, then the mental health legislation will no longer apply and it will be this one legislation, the MCA MI 2016, that will apply for both mental health and mental capacity. 
However, in the South, the focus has only been on mental capacity. And following, um, I suppose, the decision in Fitzpatrick and Kay, there has been, even prior to the Act, a presumption of capacity and indeed a functional test. And what the Act does is it endorses this approach. It endorses a presumption of capacity and it endorses the functional test. So where you don't need to ask, is there an impairment of or a disturbance in the functioning or the mind or, or the brain of the patient? And as well as that, the Act in the South uses a will and preference model. It also says that there can be co-decision makers and assisted decision makers. Um, so I think that from a CRPD perspective, the approach in the South is probably um, more human rights focused and maybe can be commended more on those grounds. But the approach in the North can also be commended because it's trying to reduce stigma associated with mental health and by fusing, fusing mental health with mental, um, mental capacity. It'll be interesting to see how the 2015 Act in the South works in practice. And, you know, it's argued by some that it's relatively complex, especially in relation to the role of co-decision makers and, decision, and assisted decision makers. But I think both... Um, the, the legislation in the South and the North show positive steps towards being more inclusive and more encompassing of values that relate to autonomy and human dignity. It is worth briefly just bearing in mind that arguably one of the reasons why the legislation in the North is less in line with the CRPD is that the UK government has had, had a quite a tepid commitment to the CRPD unlike in the South, where I think there's been a real push to try to ensure that legislation is in, li is in line with this convention. Thank you very much. Although in my career in foreign affairs, well, a long time ago, um, I certainly do remember we, it wasn't necessarily easy uh, to convince all departments in the South that mm. uh, the, the CPRD would not uh, bring about great problems or, or <laughs> challenges. I think Andrea probably knows who I mean. Um, <laughs> but uh, Andrea, anything anything to say there before we move on to the abortion question? Um, I mean, Clayton is very much the uh, the expert in this, but I do think it's interesting the kind of I, whether you look at mental health on its own or you look at mental health and capacity. And certainly, the view down here, as far as I know, was that mental health was seen as being dealt with, and it was just capacity that needed to be looked at, and they were very siloed. So it was just very interesting to look at that. Um, and just one thing, we're, we're in the Law Reform Commission at the moment, we're working on on adult safeguarding as the kind of third piece of that picture. Yes. Um, and we tend to look at them all separately, but there are always these kind of necessary overlaps between them. Have there been, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, you know, since the um, the acts have, have come into effect, have there been any sort of major cases which have tested the the limits, do you know? Well, the delay, I think, in bringing in the 2015 Act. So it only it was only commenced this year, I think. Um, so we will see big cases coming out now. Um, but the, the difficulty with it, and it's kind of a cautionary tale, is that it's this really ambitious piece of legislation, but it has huge resource implications. So getting the Decision Support yeah. Service up and running took a very long time. So you had this massive time lag between passing the law and actually getting it into effect. And it's now a big organisation with, I think, like 60 people or something like that. Yeah. But and, and, and Clayton, in the North, any, any, any major case which is clarified or, or complicated no, things? there have been no major cases. Again, it's been relatively slow. It's been a relatively slow process to implement uh, this change and indeed much of it has come down to resource allocation as Andrea has, has mentioned 
and in the South. Um, so there hasn't been any case law yet that I know of. Um, it is also worth bearing in mind that this is all happening at a time in the North where there's been significant strain on, on public purses and on uh, on the healthcare budget. And the NHS was always seen almost godlike in the sense that almost nobody would be, would go for private healthcare. But there's been a real movement for many uh, to to opt for private healthcare. So in many respects, it'll be interesting to see how this legislation evolves in the context mm. that the yeah. budgetary constraints on healthcare are particularly significant. Thank you. Andrea, can we move on to the question of abortion then? Yep. Um, obviously, hugely controversial issue um, politically and, and otherwise, or in both jurisdictions. So maybe you could just sort of take us through some of the, the principal points you, you make, especially in terms of similarities and, and differences. Mm. And of course, there's the question of the law itself. And then, of course, the question of the implementation of the law. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that in the South, there is this um, there, there is this question, um, you know, of, of, of whether the, the law needs to be amended in the light of experience. But uh, mm-hmm. please. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the first thing to mention is, and, and Clay has already mentioned this, is the lawmaking process around abortion. And I think in our in our work, one thing that we thought was particularly interesting was the difference in the way in which law reform came about in the context of abortion, North and South. So in the North, you had what was a, a law made by Westminster. In the Republic, you had this kind of hyper-democratised process. Um, and obviously that was a product of the fact that there was a constitutional protection for the right to life of the unborn. So you could only have a law reform about abortion if you had a constitutional referendum. So you necessarily had this huge degree of sort of popular sovereignty over abortion. So there was that huge process that con- concluded in 2018, followed by the 2019 Act, which of course was published before the referendum. So people knew what the legislature said it was going to do about it. And also the element of the Citizens' Assembly that led up to that. So a very, very different process in the South. And I suppose to some extent this this idea in the, in the Republic that, you know, these kind of liberalising moves are a really big part of the kind of the history of, of the Republic of Ireland society. And while obviously... Uh, it wasn't a huge majority. It was around a 60-30 kind of split. There is, I think, a very positive message around that for a lot of people, notwithstanding the fact that there are presumably plenty of people who are unhappy with the outcome of the referendum. So the first thing to say is very different lawmaking processes. And I think that's very, very interesting. In terms of the way the law operates, another interesting feature of the Act, which, as I mentioned, was published before the referendum, is that it has an internal requirement for a review. That's very unusual. So it's rarely included. I think we found, I have a, a project in kind subjection at the moment and I think we only found one other example of an act that had an internal requirement for review but that does seem to have been a a sort of political move to say well don't worry we'll look at it in three years so in three years you have to review the act so that review is essentially ongoing but you, you can see that that even the requirement for a review has kind of generated controversy in that you have people saying a review means a whole scale review of everything about abortion law and you have other people largely politicians saying no 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 it's much more moderate than that and of course they don't really want to 
open up anything about abortion again. But just to make a few points about the substance of abortion law in Ireland, which I think are, are interesting. The first I would say is that in terms of abortion without any specific indication, and it is without any indication, that's within the first 12 weeks. So you don't have to have any particular reason you're entitled to an abortion within the first 12 weeks. So it's 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 you don't have to have any reason, which isn't the, the case in lots of jurisdictions, but it is a, lim- a time limited period. Uh, and that's significant. There's also a three day waiting period. And that's been one of the uh, more controversial features of the Act. I suppose the difficulty being that the three-day waiting period doesn't take account of the 12-week cutoff. So let's say there's an argument that that might actually persuade you to go earlier rather than later. And that's significant as well. Um, And then the just two other things to mention are that there have been certain concerns about the practical application of the law uh, in terms of whether or not it's always possible to access uh, abortions within, within Ireland. But I mean, that's not that's sort of ongoing in terms of, of exploration. I do think a very interesting sort of philosophical feature of the law is that the Republic of Ireland regime doesn't make any provision for abortion on grounds of disability, except in the case of what are called fatal fetal anomalies. So if the baby is not going to survive outside the womb uh, for longer than 28 days, I think, uh, then you can have an abortion in the Republic. But there's no other disability ground whatsoever. And in fact, in the context of the referendum debate, what's very interesting is that it was never even suggested that there should be disability-based abortion uh, in this jurisdiction. So I think there is a really important conversation to be had about whether or not that is that is how we want it to be. Are we taking a stand and saying we don't actually allow abortion on grounds of disability? Or is that was that kind of a, a political consensus to get the get the referendum over the line, um, and and it does also there's a an interesting situation whereby it is possible to do kind of basic uh, genetic screening and prenatal testing within that 12 week period. So there is kind of a, to some extent probably some people accessing abortion on grounds of disability, but it's not provided for in the act, and that's that's a contrast to the position in the, in the north. Yeah, I suppose that. Yeah, the, the sort of major, as it were, health check is carried out at about 20 weeks, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Clayton, of course, in Northern Ireland, the process of changing the law, A, there was no constitutional um, provision, obviously, but B, of course, I suppose it was kind of the opposite of, of democratic. And if you had in in the South these, these three stages of Citizens' Assembly, a Rockless Committee and then a referendum in Northern Ireland it was essentially something which the Secretary of State um, felt obliged slash empowered to, to drive through. Yes, definitely. It's been very different to the situation in the Republic where the law was introduced at a time when there was no um, no functioning executive or no functioning government in Northern Ireland, um, the um, the assembly was closed between 2017 and 2020, and at this time, it was the opinion of um, the Westminster government that there was a need to ensure that the law in Northern Ireland was in line with the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, but it was also the view that the law ought to sit with what was decided by the UK Supreme Court. The UK Supreme Court made a decision um, based um, on a case that was brought by the Northern Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission. And it was decided that the law in Northern Ireland was not in line with Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which is the right to respect for private and family life. However, the Supreme Court said 
that they couldn't order a declaration of incompatibility because the NIHRC did not have a legal standing to bring the case. So this meant that Westminster were of the view that the Supreme Court felt that there was a breach of Article 8 and that uh, there was um, a failure to comply with the CEDAW report. And two particular uh, paragraphs in the CEDAW report said that the Offences Against the Persons Act um, needed to be repealed, or the certain sections of it, Section 58 and Section 59, needed to be repealed because they said that abortion was illegal. And up until the change in the law, abortion was only permitted if there, if it were yeah, to save the life of the mother under the Criminal Justice Act, or if there were risks to mental or physical health of the mother under the case of the Crown Against Born. So then what happened is the um, executive formation, Northern Ireland um, Act 2019, was introduced. And it said that the relevant sections of the Offences Against the Person Act um, would be repealed and that new regulations would have to be introduced that would allow for abortion in line with the recommendations made in the CEDAW report. Now, interestingly, as I said, at this time, there was no functioning executive. And indeed, there was a very um, strong view from unionist parties, particularly the DUP, that opposed any change in the law. Um, up until relatively recent, one of the, the common areas within the political sphere of Northern Ireland was an opposition to abortion. But certainly within nationalism, there's been quite a, a major change in this regard, for example, with Sinn Féin advocating in favour of change in the law. As well as that, the UK government introduced a consultation process. And interestingly, 79% of people who responded to the consultation said that they were opposed to change in the law which is quite different to, to what we've seen in the South, perhaps maybe because there hasn't been the same societal change, the same, same liberalisation, and the strong link that I think exists between religious identity and life yeah. in Northern Ireland is perhaps more apparent than in, in the South. I was going to ask two questions. I mean, first of all, the main sort of substantive differences, if there are any, between the law in the north and the law in the south. And secondly, Andrea talked about this quite controversial issue here of um, of reviewing the legislation. I'm assuming that nobody in Northern Ireland particularly wants us to wants to pick up that hot potato. Yeah, exactly. In the um, in the north, essentially, what the legislation does is it says that uh, abortion is permitted up until 12 weeks of gestation and that, you know, that this can happen without any reason provided, as well as that if there's a risk to the mental or the physical health of the mother, there is a 24-week limit. And then in relation to the risk of life, the life of the mother, there is no limit um, whatsoever. In relation to fetal fatal abnormality, this is permitted uh, without any time limit. And unlike the South, there is no opportunity for review. This is uh, the law that was introduced by a Westminster government. And what's particularly controversial is the fact that it was introduced against what arguably be the will of a significant population in Northern Ireland and indeed the views of many of the, the leading politicians in Northern Ireland. This has resulted in a very, very slow introduction of change in the law. So essentially, even when the regulations were introduced, there was then the um, abortion regulations number two, 2022, 
uh, introduced subsequently because of some um, errors in the drafting. And then there was a period where there was a real refusal from unionist uh, ministers to allow for the commissioning of abortion services. And it was only until a number of months ago where we finally had um, abortion services permitted in Northern Ireland. And during that time, people within the North were still travelling to England and to other other places to, to receive abortion services. So there has been significant changes, as, as I mentioned, and in many of them are quite similar to the South, especially the, the 12-week limits. But what is probably most controversial is the fact that this has happened without the, the political support of some of the unionist parties and indeed without a referendum or without it being debated in, in Belfast in Stormont, which makes this quite a unique piece of legislation because of its political significance and the fact that it's happened, you know, without that sort of political debate in Northern Ireland itself. Yeah, of course. I mean, in the same period, there was also the the legislation at Westminster on the Irish language, which was another way of sort of cutting the Gordian knot, I I suppose. I mean, the funny thing is, if there had been a sitting, um, a functioning assembly and executive, it must be likely that the DUP in particular would have been able to use the procedures to prevent this from from happening. But in terms of substance, Andrea, you mentioned the question of um, conscientious objection. Uh, And again, I imagine that may well operate be an issue in the North as well. But just in brief, I mean, what are the sort of principal issues and, and how are they going to be overcome? Yeah, so, well, I'm, I'm something I'm very interested in, conscientious objection is, so it's essentially the right to not perform a particular action, but in this instance, keep your job. So the question of can you be a doctor working in this field and refuse to involve yourself in abortion? So that's provided under the 2018 Act and it is, there's a statutory right as well in the North, as I understand it, but Clayton can speak more to that. But I suppose a really important distinction between the North and the South is that there is very strong constitutional protection for religious rights in the Republic. And that includes a right to conscience, which isn't necessarily exactly the same thing as conscientious objection, but there's certainly a good argument that there is constitutional protection for conscientious objection. So really, even if it wasn't provided for in the statute, there's a fairly good argument that you'd be entitled to rely on it anyway. But I think it creates an interesting distinction between the North and the South, whereby in the North, there's no obvious human rights underpinning for such a right. And in fact, you'd be better protected in the Republic And I think that probably feeds into a broader point in relation to North-South relations, that there's one thing, there's lots of things wrong with the uh, the Republic and with the Constitution, but it is very strong on religious rights. And this is one very practical example of where religious rights might really make a difference. Clayton, you want to add to that? In Northern Ireland, there is the conscientious objection clause, which exists within the abortion regulations. And the debate is whether or not it involves a wide or a narrow version of conscientious objection. In Britain, a case called um, Dugan or Greater Glasgow Health Board and Dugan, it said that in relation to the Abortion Act 1967 that applies in GB, not, not Northern Ireland, that it only involves a narrow hands-on version of conscientious objection in relation to conscientious objecting those who are directly involved in in the abortion services. And this has been challenged on the grounds that it isn't in line with Article 9 of the ECHR, which is uh, the um, right to religion, thought and conscience. But ultimately, the Supreme Court in the UK said uh, that for practical reasons uh, and for another a number of other reasons, um, that it ought to be a very narrow version of participate. 
In the response made by the UK government to the consultation, the UK government said that this is going to be a narrow version of conscientious objection and that it should only involve those with a hands-on role. So not the secretary who works um, in the hospital or, or other nurses who might work on on a war, on a world where abortion is is allowed for basically because the UK government said that it would interfere with abortion services and that the the current approach is in line with human rights law now i'm not fully sure if that's an accurate depiction of what exists in northern ireland because the supreme court were only talking about the abortion act 1967 they weren't talking about the new regulations in northern ireland and as well as that, it is worth bearing in mind that there has been an enormous number of people who have written in the consultation process in favour of a wide version of conscientious objection. But as Andrea mentions, in the North, there isn't uh, the same protection given to religious freedom and religious rights, you know, and, and all that you can do is rely on Article 9 of the ECHR. Conscientious objection is there within the abortion regulations and it does allow for those who are actively involved in an abortion to refuse, but it doesn't extend to people beyond that hands-on role. If we could move on then to our third topic, I'm sure there are more questions I could ask about abortion uh, law, but um, conscious of time, uh, clinical negligence, um, Andrea, which you said was kind of, in a way, how health law began and there seem to be quite considerable differences between North and South, maybe not so much in the fundamentals of the law, but but in its application. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So this is one we chose to include, I suppose, because in terms of practical, real life law, clinical negligence is the one that ordinary people know about. You know, this is in terms of you, you know, if someone says, if you say you're a medical lawyer, people usually say, oh, I know someone who had an issue in a hospital and this is what happened. So, you know, it's the real life like like uh, area of law. Um, and in terms of looking north south, it's also very important because it's a common law area, which means that it's developed almost exclusively by the courts, um, which means the courts have developed the law and have drawn heavily from, the Irish courts have drawn heavily from English law in certain elements of clinical negligence. And therefore, in theory, the Northern Irish courts and the Republic of Ireland courts could draw on each other's jurisprudence, but they don't. So it's a really good example of two neighbouring jurisdictions who presumably dealing with very similar kind of cases uh, who never refer to each other. And I think that's really, really interesting. And even looking at Northern Ireland, it doesn't really have a distinct clinical negligence law of its own, even though it could. So it, it, even we were trying to dig out case law that even adverted to the fact that it was a different jurisdiction to England and Wales. But it's very much just applying the law of England and Wales. So one thing that we were very curious about, and we'd actually love to sort of talk to practitioners about this, is if anyone ever says, oh, actually, you know, it would be advantageous to us in this case if the Republic of Ireland law was applied rather than the English and Wales law. We'd love to know if like those arguments are ever made. But this is one of these things that it's just hard to find out. So we'll think about that for future research projects, how we could ever dig out that kind of information. So that's, I think, the core point about clinical negligence, just that fact of them being so totally invisible to each other, I think is really, really interesting. There are, in terms of the substance of the law, there are not that many really big differences. There's one quite technical doctrine called loss of a chance. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into something so technical, but I might start with the more practical. The big practical difference, which people actually care about, of course, is the damages are much lower in, in the North. So what's really interesting is, and, and this is kind of inexplicable, damages are very, very low in England and Wales. They're very, very high in the Republic of Ireland and they're somewhere in the middle in the north. And there seems to be, like, no one can really figure out why that is. 
we uh, we had a discussion about this in the law library recently and everybody was saying, so why is that? And, and no one seems to know. It's some sort of these, these differences in legal culture that just emerge in different countries. So you have courts valuing the same injuries, you know, totally, totally differently. And some of it can be explained by the fact that there's probably better social care provision, possibly in the North and in GB. So like you can't claim for nursing care and things like that. Maybe there's more public provision. But even general damages, you have these these wild differences. So that's a very important practical difference. If something bad happens to you, you better hope it happens in the Republic, is the short. <laughs> it, 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 it's a clear question, because I'm, I'm aware that, anecdotally at least, and I'm from looking at the papers, that a lot of cases in the South, you know, never actually get into open yeah. court. And, you know, because they're settled in part, I suppose, because of the huge legal costs involved yeah. and the uncertainty. So I suppose it could be a bit difficult at times to know what might have happened mm. if a thing had gone to court. Uh, Clayton, in Northern Ireland, is there a similar culture of, of settling on the steps of the court or otherwise? There'd be a very similar culture in that regard, um, you know, where a, a very large number of cases would be settled prior to court. Um, and I think, you know, I basically echo what Andrea has said, that um, in Northern Ireland, when you look at the jurisprudence, there seems to be um, never any discussion about what's happened in the Republic. And it's almost been a, a carbon copy or copy and paste from what the law is in um, you know, the common law in, in England and Wales. So, yeah, in relation to damages and, and, and the, the amount of monies that are offered, that's probably, you know, the, the biggest differences where we have seen in the South, as Andrea has mentioned, very significant um, amounts of money in comparison to, to, to the UK and, and this somewhat of a in, in between in the North. But yes, um, essentially many cases will be settled, you know, before they reach court because of, of the way in which, you know, the, the regime works um, and um, to try to, to come to, to resolutions that are, you know, acceptable to, to all the different parties. Yeah, I mean, I suppose on this question of the North being invisible to the South and, and vice versa, I mean, I suppose as well, I mean, it would probably be up to lawyers taking cases mm. or defending cases, uh, looking for new arguments to uh, to quarry um, what's available on the other side of the border. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's why the fact that we don't in universities teach very much about the other jurisdiction is really significant. You know, so it's really, even though in Ireland it's a small jurisdiction, we do use international case law from common law jurisdictions a lot. But we need to kind of build a culture of looking to Northern Ireland, I think. You know, it's, it's, there are good reasons why we would regard it as very persuasive precedent, as we say. I'm just going to jump in and say, and because the, the population is just, you know, so much lower in, in Northern Ireland, it basically means that there's, you know, such a wide range of case law available in England uh, and in mm. England and Wales deciding on these subjects, you know, sheerly down to this population size. Sorry, just a, just a sort of factual question, if, 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 you, if you know the answer, uh, before we get on to just any concluding remarks. I mean, is you mentioned earlier, I think, Andrea, that medical negligence cases really began to sort of grow in the 80s, 90s. I mean, at times we can get the sense that there are, you know, there are more and more of them all the time. 
Is that is that impression true, or is it simply down to how the papers report store individual cases? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I think that they didn't take off. Like, there's a kind of a definable point when uh, one very important case called Dunn in the National Maternity Hospital essentially set down a test for clinical negligence, which was sort of achievable, and it grew from there. And there's a similar case in the UK. But I do think the discourse around clinical negligence can be very distorted. So you know, you have people reporting, oh, these huge amounts of money, and doctors can't do their jobs. But touching on something I said earlier. You know, when you see huge in the Republic, really, really big sums of money, the kind of like five, 10, 20 million, they are usually cases of catastrophic injury where the people involved genuinely don't have sufficient state care. So if the state was able to meet those cases by saying, well, we provide properly for people who have cerebral palsy, they wouldn't win them. So you have to temper some of the discourse with a reality check on, well, look, social care just isn't good enough. And that's why you end up with cases like that. Just okay, then. Just as we come to the end, uh, Clayton, any any sort of overall point you want to make, or anything you would have liked to have said earlier, which you didn't get around to? No, I think I've raised everything I'd like to to mention. It's just maybe as a final point to recognise that um, it's quite clear throughout the different strands that we've looked at, and I'd say that true, it would be also true of other areas that there is um, a lack of solidarity or lack of understanding. Uh, in relation to what's happening on two sides uh, of the island. And that's something that I think does deserve further investigation. Well, I think it's it's true. It's true in, in other areas of law, but it's it's true across the board, I, I'm afraid to say. And that's one of the mm. things which our research has really underscored. Uh, Andrea, any final words from you? Yeah, I just echo that. I mean, like even this process has just been very valuable in, in terms of having to look at the other jurisdiction. Like I'd probably never done a search for Northern Irish case law until I did this project, which is terrible to admit. Um, but like, I would love to see us slightly reframe, certainly legal education, to make us all look a little bit more across the border. Well, thank you very much. I mean, Andrea Mulligan uh, and Clayton O'Neill. As we know in Ireland, you've as you know in Ireland, we've published you know a number of articles comparing law and North and South. We had one which came out in early December, which was about victims' rights and North and South, and there are others as as well. So I'm sure we'll return to this general question of North South convergence and divergence uh, in the future. But in the meanwhile, Clayton and Andrea, and um, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you very much. ARANS stands for Analysing and Researching Ireland, North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy, which is the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the University of Notre Dame's Kyo Nocton Institute of Irish Studies, which is itself part of the Kyo School of Global Affairs. It was established in 2020 with the objective, especially at that time in a post-Brexit context, of producing authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research across the full range of relevant constitutional, institutional and social issues. And in fact, over the last couple of years, uh, we've covered uh, a quite remarkable range of subjects. And the research can be found in the Journal of Irish Studies in International Affairs, which is published by the Royal Irish Academy, and access to which is free to all online. Uh, The aim is to be scholarly uh, but also accessible and relevant. Publications began to appear in early 2021 um, and this podcast also began uh, in 2021 in June. I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast you just listened to and I also hope 
that you will find others of interest on our website, which is aaronsproject.com, and also that you listen out for future podcasts, which are normally dropped on the first Thursday of every month. Thanks very much for listening.